Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. I'm Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to investigate the Scriptures with us as we continue to probe Jesus' favorite topic, the Gospel about the Kingdom of God. If you pick up a Bible and glance through the recorded accounts of Jesus' ministry, it wouldn't matter which translation you selected, you will find that there is a common theme in the message and the ministry of Jesus, and that is the kingdom of God message, the gospel about the kingdom of God. In Luke 4, verse 43, Jesus made a statement which should be emblazoned on the hearts of every Christian. He said there that he came to preach the gospel about the kingdom of God. That's the reason why God sent him. I want to stress the extreme importance of that verse in Luke 4, verse 43. The occasion here was that Jesus had departed to a lonely place, and the multitudes were searching for him, and came to him, and tried to keep him from going away from their town. The town in this case was Capernaum, and Jesus' response to their request that he not leave them was this, Luke 4, verse 43, he said to them, I must proclaim the gospel of the kingdom of God to the other cities also, for I was sent for this purpose. I'm reading there from the New American Standard Version. I was sent for this purpose. That's the reason God commissioned me. That's the point of my whole ministry. Could we Christians say today that the preaching of the gospel about the kingdom of God is the driving force of our ministries? The phrase kingdom of God and gospel of the kingdom of God is surprisingly rare on the lips of Christians today. And yet for Jesus, the whole reason for his mission, the whole point of the Christian faith as he conceived it, was the proclamation of the gospel, the evangelizing of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Let's pause for a few more moments on this critically important text, Luke 4, verse 43. Your translation probably reads, I must preach the kingdom of God. A little investigation in the original language there shows that that word preach has to do with preaching the gospel. The text really should read, I must proclaim the gospel about the kingdom of God to the other cities also. You see, this word preach in the original Greek is the standard word for proclaiming the gospel, indeed for proclaiming the gospel about the kingdom of God. There's only one gospel in the New Testament. But because the content of the gospel, as the gospel of the kingdom, was so well known to both writers and readers, there was no need to speak of the kingdom of God every time you mentioned the gospel. It was assumed that one knew that the gospel means the gospel about the kingdom of God. Today, for example, if you say the U.S., it's assumed that you mean the United States of America. And so the phrase U.S. is a useful, condensed, shorthand version of the United States of America. In exactly the same way, the word gospel in the New Testament is a condensed, shorthand way of speaking of the gospel of the kingdom of God. Now, you can demonstrate this for yourselves and also for your friends easily by showing that in Matthew 24, verse 14, Jesus referred to this gospel about the kingdom of God being preached in the whole world before the second coming of Jesus. And in the equivalent verse in Mark chapter 13 and verse 10, we read, 
the gospel must first be preached in all the nations. Do you see then that the gospel about the kingdom of God, in Mark's version, is simply the gospel? Now that proves that the term gospel is a shorthand version of the gospel about the kingdom of God. In Luke 4, verse 43, Luke is still towards the beginning of his account, and he's still giving us the full definition of key terms. And so Luke 4, 43 provides us with an indispensable definition of the content of the gospel. The gospel is always about the kingdom of God. The question is, can you as a Christian give a good account of the gospel of the kingdom? Or have you perhaps been misled into thinking that the gospel is about the death and resurrection of Jesus only. But that can't be true, because Jesus referred to the gospel frequently during his ministry, and long before he said a word about his death and resurrection. Now, the death and resurrection of Jesus, of course, are indispensable elements in the gospel, but they do not comprise the totality of the Christian gospel. The gospel of the kingdom, a statement about God's intention to provide sound and sane government on this earth when Jesus returns, the good news about that great day coming when Jesus will establish a new headquarters in Jerusalem and rule on the throne of David, and there will be a period of incredible peace and prosperity worldwide. Satan will have been banished from the scene at that point. The great liar who is currently outwitting the human race He's deceiving all of the world, according to Revelation 12, verse 9, and 1 John 5, verse 19. Satan is the great problem in our midst, the unseen enemy who is twisting the minds of people, perverting our interpretation of the gospel and of the Bible because of the intrusion of alien ideas into the system. The fundamental problem with denominations and all the chaos that we see around us in the Christian world is that we have not paid attention to the Jewish ways of thinking in which Jesus taught. You see, the Bible was written by Jews, with the probable exception of Luke. All the writers of the Bible in the Old Testament and the New were Jewish people, and they work out of a Jewish messianic framework. We in the West are heavily influenced by Greek ways of thinking, by alien ways of thinking, that have become intruders into the biblical system. Many people reading the Bible simply bring their church traditions to the reading of the text. I was mentioning in a previous program, for example, the text in John 17, verse 5, where Jesus said, Glorify me with the glory which I had before the foundation of the world. Now, people read that text with a thoroughly ingrained idea in their minds that Jesus was a pre-existent being who once in eternity had glory personally alongside of God as a kind of second God in the system, and that he gave that glory up in order to become a man. But you see, in the Hebrew and Jewish way of thinking, you can have glory with God without actually being there. It can be glory which God has destined for you to have. In this phrase, then, the glory which I had before the foundation of the world in John 17:5. Jesus is referring to the glory which God had promised him from the foundation of the world, and he's praying now to be given that glory in actuality, the glory which God had prepared for him. Do you remember that Jesus in Matthew 25 said, Inherit the kingdom prepared for you before the foundation of the world? 
Jesus could have said there, Inherit the kingdom which you had before the foundation of the world. That's to say, God had already given it to you in his intention and his plan, but you hadn't actually received it. There's text in Revelation 13, verse 8, which says that Jesus was crucified before the foundation of the world. Consult the translation of that verse, incidentally, in the New International Version of the Bible. Jesus, that text states, was actually crucified before the foundation of the world. Well, we know that that's not historically true. He wasn't crucified twice, once before the foundation of the world and once around A.D. 30. No, the text clearly means that God intended the crucifixion. He foresaw the crucifixion before the foundation of the world. And so, you see, things can be spoken of as having already happened or even as already existing long before they actually exist, because in Jewish ways of thinking, all the great events and personalities of the future exist, in a sense, in the mind of God, not actually, but in God's plan and intention. In John 17, verse 5, Jesus spoke of the glory which he had before the foundation of the world, meaning the glory which God had promised for him. That text doesn't mean that Jesus was actually alive with glory before he was born. Now, that's a good example of reading the Bible in its proper Jewish environment. We must take care not to read the Bible with our own church traditions firmly ensconced in our heads. We must take off the spectacles of church councils and later traditions, which make it very difficult for us now to understand the Bible in its original context. Back then for a moment to Luke 4, verse 43. We were speaking of the gospel of the kingdom there, and Jesus announcing the fact that it was for that very reason, for the proclamation of the gospel of the kingdom of God, that he had been sent. Now, when God sent Jesus, it doesn't mean that Jesus had to give up a life in heaven in order to become a man. To send somebody in the Bible means to commission them. We find, for example, that John the Baptist was a man sent from God. Let me refer you exactly to that verse in John 1, verse 6. There came a man, referring to John the Baptist here, sent from God. His name was John. Now, does that mean that John existed before his birth and that God sent him from a previous life in heaven to the earth? Well, of course not. Why then, when we read in the case of Jesus that he was sent for the purpose of preaching the gospel of the kingdom, do we assume that this means that he pre-existed his birth? That's not logical. The word send in the Bible means to be commissioned. All the prophets of Israel were sent. They were to be, in other words, representatives of God. They were to speak the very words of God. And that's exactly what Jesus saw as his mission and purpose. Do you remember that famous verse in Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15, where we have a wonderful prediction of the function and the office of Jesus the Messiah? We read there in Deuteronomy 18, verse 15, The Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me. It's Moses speaking here. Like Moses from among you, from your countrymen, and you are to listen to him. 
This was a prediction of the coming of Jesus many centuries later. You note that the Lord God, the one God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, is going to raise up, that's to say, put on the human scene, produce a prophet like Moses. Jesus was to arise in the family of Israel, amongst the countrymen of Moses, and the people were exhorted to listen to that great coming prophet. Now, God did not say through Moses that the Messiah was to descend from some previous life. No, he was to arise in the family of Israel. And on verse 18 of Deuteronomy 18, we read this. This is God's declaration. I will raise up a prophet from among their countrymen, like Moses, and I, God, will put my words in his mouth, and he will speak to them all that I command him. That's a perfect description of the function and the nature of the Son of God. He's to be a spokesman and representative, an agent of the one God of Israel, and he's going to have in his mouth the very words of God, because God has commissioned him. Now, those words are summarized in Jesus' statement in Luke 4, verse 43, that he's destined to speak for the one God in regard to the preaching of the kingdom of God. I must preach the kingdom of God to the other cities also. That's why God commissioned me. Luke 4, verse 43. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to request from us our free book on the kingdom, an article on the Christian gospel in the New Testament, and a booklet entitled, Who is Jesus? Join us again for our continued discussion of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel of the kingdom of God.